Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 156. I had a chat with Mike Weston. He is a, a multidisciplinary artist. He is or has been a record producer, a DJ, a musician. He is a visual artist. He is a, a, an, an en- uh, enabler of art. Um, he is a one half of the artistic pairing Weston Frizzell. So we talk about that quite a bit with, with uh, his partner in that uh, enterprise being Otis Frizzell. Uh, he has worked in um, live sound teching. He's worked in artist management. He has run galleries. And, uh, you know, on his own and as part of Weston Frizzell, he conceptualizes and produces uh, a lot of art and a lot of discussion around art. And so, I had just met him a few days before this conversation. We had um, connected and met up. I'd always wanted to talk to him, but we actually had a bit of a dry run in that we had a chat without the recording going. And then I went back to his uh, to his studio space, the area in Auckland, and, and chatted to him there. And we had a big old uh, philosophical conversation about art and you know producing content and creating things and and somewhere in and around all of that uh, little bits of his timeline which is well it's really it's all over the place we're talking about a person who has infiltrated the visual arts and music scenes in New Zealand for for sort of 30 or 40 years really Um, I really enjoyed meeting Mike and having a couple of chats to him over a couple of days and then sitting down and recording this one Um, so I hope you enjoy this too my thanks as always to Yeasty Boys La Petit Chocolat and Tea Leaf Tea, you can check out the podcast on Spotify, you probably know that already, you can check it out in all sorts of places. This is me talking to Mike Weston. I do want to try and put across some sense of your timeline and some of the things that you've been involved in, knowing that you've also, you know, it wasn't that long ago you talked to Lewis Tennant and I'll probably share a link to that so people can hear that if they haven't come across that and they want to hear more. So I don't want to double up too much on what Lewis did, but, but feel free to, we'll probably revisit some of that conversation because I've heard that interview and and it's you talking about your life so we may track over some of that but let's try and go to some different places yeah sure yeah. Um, so I'm thinking like I mean how long ago was it now? <sighs> is it a year? yeah it's probably a year or so yeah, I mean, I, so you it, might everything can change in a year and everything <laughs> I'm not everything's changed but a lot it, a lot uh, has, uh, yeah the biggest yeah. changes I think this year and it's kind of always been like that that every year bigger changes mm. yeah alright well let's go back to uh, I mean, how do you? Well, how do you describe yourself? Do you describe yourself as a multi-platform artist or a multi-discipline um, well, artist? Well, it, it depends who I'm describing yeah. myself to. It's kind of, it's maybe less useful to describe myself, you know, in, in the who I am terms, mm. and more in this what I'm doing terms or what what I can do. Well, what do you write on the arrivals card? Artist. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. artist. I choked on it for years. Yeah. I choked on it for ages, but. Yeah, it was really an important sort of, um, I wouldn't say identity move, but focusing move and a commitment, you know, like just choking Mm. artists. But, you know, once I stepped over that, Mm -hmm. you know, I just realised this, yeah, I can do this. I do it differently than other people, but that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so what we're going to do then is we're going to try and retrace the steps that got you to feel comfortable about calling yourself an artist and look at, um, I guess, some of the... Failures and successes along that path. Right, right. Um, when do you? Where do you grow up? In, right, Dunedin. I was yeah. born in Dunedin in '63. Mm. Mm. So, both of my parents. Well, at the time, my dad was a 
radio he was he was working for dntv2 like he he launched dntv2 there's a picture on the tvnz history site i think uh of him you know on tv saying you know this is the start of it mm. it's on my facebook page actually um yeah so, so um yeah i grew up in dunedin in mornington and um lived in this giant house that was kind of um, just a historic place that had been built by a, a you know sort of I suppose late 19th century businessman and it was kind of big enough to have servants but we just had this giant place for ourselves and my mum was a journalist uh, working for the Evening Star mm. and then she sort of floated up to, to become the first news editor it was kind of a big deal at that time for a woman to have that role in, in a daily paper of that sort of magnitude and then she jumped from that into TV. So in terms of what my parents work, you know, both of them were working in the media. Mm. And I, did, I got exposed to a lot of art. And I remember kind of experiencing this sort of confusion as a kid, going to my mates' houses and, and just sort of thinking, God, they haven't got very many books. Or, um, you know, just that there, was, there, was, there wasn't, I, I just wondered why, why they didn't have any art. And then I just sort of realized, actually it was because you know, my folks' house was just sort of like wall-to-wall books and pictures and stuff. You know, they were they were just kind of always in that kind of. Um, there was always more around than there was space for, mm. and, and a constant sort of turnover of it. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, so that kind of really did, um, you know, sink in. Although I didn't really kind of realise it until after I'd kind of finished just being a sort of skate rat and. Um, what else was I doing? Yeah, I, I, I just kind of had a, grew up, my teenage years was sort of like a bit of a California lifestyle kind of thing, of hanging out at the beach and just skating and stuff, with that as a backdrop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I kind of got interested in, in kind of doing, uh, like maybe sort of manufacturing skateboards and, and there's an art component to that, and then got into bands and was in, um, you know, played guitar and bass and some bands around the time when the whole Dunedin sound thing was happening. And that was kind of completely my contemporaries. I, I was uh, like at school in, in classes like with Martin Phillips or David Kilgour, yeah. Sneaky Feelings guys, you know. And there was lots of other scenes there as well. Like I, I kind of attached myself musically to um, to the rhythm section from the Idols who was Barry Blackler and um, Robin Murphy. Um, you know, both have had sort of long and really interesting careers. Barry in particular sort of went internationally mm. and, 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 and you know has been really successful as a promoter and you know, I mean, he's just a mover and shaker and, and, and a dynamic musician. But at the time, that whole scene was kind of a bit ostracised. So it's, it put me in this kind of in-between place of being, you know, like a sort of skater mm. with this very kind of Californian-focused... Like I skied as well, you know, it's just into that sort of action sports thing before it was there was such a thing, you know, um, and then moved into BMX. So I was kind of doing that. And then at the same time, um, was sort of engaging... Like, um, kind of doing media manipulation stuff and kind of zines and um, just generally kind of disruptive like spoof this band I was in Crystal Zoom with, um, with Bruce Mahalski so we were like a spoof band and at the time I was still quite attached to kind of being accomplished as a musician and, and writing proper music mm-hmm. you know but Bruce was sort of very much in a kind of um, you know, you know c- p- performance um, disruptive kind of um, prankster you know that, that was his whole buzz so it was an interesting dynamic and, and, and at the time a lot of our kind of pranking was just really sort of focused on the kind of um, 
increasingly sort of pretentious flood of people into Dunedin who had this particular idea, the mediated idea of what Dunedin was about. So they all flooded into Dunedin thinking the Dunedin scene was this thing that, that, that they'd, they'd kind of had been exposed to through media and so it was kind of a distortion and, it, and, and that's, that pressure just really, um, it changed the local scene really weird. Mm -hmm. It was a really strange thing. Uh, you know, and so we're just sort of floating around that, and then um, in '85, I moved to to Auckland and kind of had this idea of um, like being in Dunedin. Just before I left, Bruce and I um, we, we 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 picked up with Barry Blackler and Robin, and so we had this incredibly solid rhythm section, and and quite sort of um, quite good connections, you know, within kind of uh, you know rock touring community and recording people and stuff. Who, who were just, you know, kind of attached and associated with them. That was a really kind of great thing for, for, for you know, a couple of, you know, young, young sort of, you know, didn't even know how to describe us really, but, you know, we were just having fun, man, you know what I mean? So, so all of a sudden we had this fucking really dynamic band and, um, and so we thought that we would be able to jump, um, naively that we would be able to bounce out of Dunedin and then come to Auckland and kind of pick up an equivalent band in Auckland. And, and kind of like, you know, go seek fame and fortune. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember doing this gig at the Chills and, I, and, and Bruce was just on fire. It was really like t a terrifying performance because he was so over the top. Um, and, um, and afterwards, Terry Moore saying to me you know, that, that he would never ever do another gig, <laughs> another gig with us ever again. That, that was it. <laughs> he had enough. <laughs> And so, what what influence? I mean, I'm friends with Terry, by the way. But <laughs> what, what influence around all of this was? Um, I guess the broad punk movement was that a big inspirer? You're just talking about your well, it is cut ups. It sort of passed look, by then. Yeah, because yeah, like yeah. The, the punk. I was 14. I remember being at high school, and and George K was my history teacher at school, and so he was a very influential music reviewer mm. with Rip It Up. Mm. And so he started a record club at school, um, at Otago Boys High School, and, and I think it was Thursday's um, lunchtime or after lunch for an hour or something. So you could go to his room, and because he was receiving so many records at the time to review them, he just basically built this record collection for the, for the record club at Otago Boys High out of his sort of extra review stuff, mm. and kind of started a trading pool of records just out of, you know, all... He kind of donated a pool of records and then managed to sort of trade it and, and kind of and, and, and make it become a thing so that it did actually become a repository for new releases. And so, like at the time, the bunch of people who were in that class, it's it's kind of a bit of a, a sort of a who's who of the, of the seed of the Dunedin sound, really. Because I remember I remember being 14 and Hamish Kilgow was hanging out there, and I know that David was there a lot. And I'm sure David Pine, Sneaky Feelings, um, Graham Cockroft. You know, from yeah. Neither Dancing Toys. Um, um, who else? I, mean, I remember, you know, other people visiting because it was it was that much of a thing. Mm. You know, but it, but it was just a, um, it was a massively influential. And also, George used to bring these folders of punk singles. Like he just had this ridiculous collection of all uh, you know of of the the the, um, the singles that you would be salivating over in the back of mm. NME. You know, the picture discs, Buzzcock, Sex Pistols, all that sort of first generation with the graphic art as well. So, I mean, that made a really big impression on me, actually seeing those picture covers. Mm -hmm. I really got that, you know, that, that because the design was really happening in the Manchester scene at the time. It was all really kind of established and kind of, you know, 
cool, talented people, and the production was really snappy as well. So, you know, that, that was kind of the real, um, uh, you know, it's like a, a foundation, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, I can't think. Seminal. Formative. Formative. Yeah, formative, for mm. sure. On top of my kind of skateboarding focus and, you know, this sort of surf scene and the whole, that whole graphic design mm. sensibility and the music that was maybe, you know, attached to that with the sort of psychedelic rock or, you know, Fleetwood Mac or kind of quite, uh, you know, strong imagery, Californian stuff or, mm. you know, um, I suppose the Beach Boys, that, that that's kind of an older generation thing. But I think the first record I ever bought was a Beach Boys record, Greatest Hits or something, you know, quite late in the piece for the Beach, if, if, um, for the beach Boys, but... So there was a connection, but both the Kilgar brothers are surfers, mm. uh, and so I kind of had a connection with them, and same with um, Martin Phillips was kind of around the sort of downtown Dunedin skateboarding scene a little bit, and I was a really good skater, at, and and so because of that, I kind of had a bit of an in with those guys um, in, a, in a way other than music, mm. and so I don't kind of feel the pressure so much to conform musically, I just was quite happy to be getting on with my own thing. And, and there was no getting away from gigging with the bands at the time. Like we, we gigged quite a bit with the Double Happies and we shared a practice room with them. And, you know, and we, and we're partying with those guys. Dunedin's an incredibly small place. Mm, mm. But I was just doing my own thing. Like, I was sort of a bit more interested in, in, in um, um, like, well, John Cale, I really like John Cale, but I got really interested like in, in Trevor Horn's kind of mega production with Frankie Goes to Hollywood and mm. Billy Idol and, and all that kind of, you know, electronic generation rock music. That was the sort of thing that I think because I, I started to get really interested in working in recording studios. Mm. And so that was kind of where that kind of music was at the, at the sort of frontier of recording studio technology and aesthetics, I guess. Mm, mm, the big sound. Yeah, the orchestration. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, and I, I got, did get exposed to a lot of classical music as a kid, and, and my dad also had a really cool stereo with tannoys and stuff, and constant flow of broadcasting equipment and tape recorders and shit. So, mm. uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really pay any attention, or, or just kind of took it completely for granted, you know, just because it was, it was always there and quite often just kind of dumped on the floor, you know, on the way through sort mm. of a thing. But nonetheless... That was something I, that I kind of became aware of way afterwards that, that there was something, you know, that was in any way irregular. You know? So you moved to Auckland in 85 yeah. to, do, to do what? Was the band. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Bruce and I um, had the idea, just the sort of typical, you know, fame and fortune, just going to a big city mm. and, um, you know, trying something fresh. We had some connections here with other crew from Dunedin, like Martin had already moved up here. so. I stayed at his house the first night I was here. Um, I crashed at Mar Martin Phillips' house, and, and in the middle of the night, um, oh God, I'm trying to think of his name. The sound man. Um, oh, it'll come to me. So they said, "Oh, he's not. He's not going to be back. He's out on tour." Um, I don't recall who he was out with. Might have been the Chills actually. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, and in the middle of the night, on the, my very first night in Auckland, he came home and I was sleeping in his bed. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody had told him. <laughs> so, so I'm never, oh, it'll come to me. And so, and when do you, so when do you, when and how do you get involved in, I mean, I sort of know the how, but... 
when does it morph that you're suddenly involved in, I guess, audio engineering and producing? Oh, okay. so, so Is that the next kind of significant thing that happens? Or it, well, it was instantly, because yeah. the first thing that we wanted to do, we did a gig at... Um, we did a gig at the Windsor with the Chills. That mm. was the one where Terry, you know, didn't yeah. like it. There's a video of it somewhere, but, you know, <laughs> everybody's going to go and watch it now. But, you know, it's horrifying. Um, so we did that, and then we went to Last Laugh Productions, uh, which was a little studio on the third floor of, like, I think it's above the, is it the Occidental? The pub that's in Vulcan Lane. Tiny little pub in Vulcan yeah, Lane. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and so up at the top of a very long flight of stairs is Last Life, which at the time was an eight-track tape studio. It did a lot of um, a lot of alternative stuff, like you know, early fetus productions was recorded there. Um, probably, you know, the bands. It was it was kind of the demo studio of choice for bands like you know, Blam Blam Blam, or mm-hmm. you know, a lot of Simon Griggs projects would have been demoed there. It's just a little studio with an 8-track, um, and also Greg Bryce, who is now, um, who makes kind of esoteric, high-end studio electronics under the brand of Ekidek. He was the technician that was involved in setting it up. Um, and Martin Williams, who went on to do um, York Street. Mm. Yeah, so it was kind of a, um, a, you know, a small but, but happening group of quite dynamic people who started this little studio in Vulcan Lane, and it became quite a hub. So we, Bruce and I went in there to record a single, um, and um, oh, no, the first thing we did in, in Last Life was we, we mixed Uptown Sheep, I think, which was a single that we did for Flying Nun. Um, and yeah, so, so we did two versions of that, and we went in there to do the final version that went on the record, that was something that we'd recorded in Dunedin. Um, and, then, um, and then I went back and we did another single um, no more, Mr. Nice Guy, which was never um, that one never got released, and, and um, Bruce's girlfriend died just while we were recording it. She died in Sydney, so that was kind of a disaster, and pretty much that kind of that killed the band. Just mm. yeah, um, yeah, and a, sort of a few other mishaps, but yeah, that was we'd been living on Waiheke, and then that happened, and Bruce, Bruce just bailed, and, and I. So, so that was what got me into Last Laugh, was that project falling over. Mm. Um, the, um, so along the way, they they kind of, uh, Martin, it might have been Greg, but I'm pretty sure it was Martin Williams, just sort of saw that, that I was pretty much self-sufficient, or at least got well on the way to being self-sufficient. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and, and so I just started working there. And and so, and with, so with the death of um, Crystal Zoom after that accident, <coughs> so short time after that, that was when I met John Payne and we started Black Girls Machine. And because I just had my keyboard set up in the control room pretty much the whole time. Mm. Yeah, and so it was um, in- increasingly, um, like at the time, the the singles projects that we're doing, people were doing a lot of, um, you know, uh, clock synced drum machine music on, on top of rock projects as well. And, you know, click track stuff. And so because I had the, uh, my own gear just uh, pretty much permanently set up in the control room, then I kind of got a, a, a sort of a, an increasing slice of the work that was going through. And it you know, wasn't enough to get rich out of, but it was a solid couple of years of experience, maybe even more. So I think I worked there from 87. I, I, I was sort of interning through 86, I think, and then that kind of turned into full-time employment and it, it evolved into doing 
you know, like sort of doing video as well. Um, because this was sort of in parallel with the um, the industrial scene was kind of really kind of coming mm. to the surface at that time, which was very much a kind of art, um, you know, kind of gallery yeah. crossover warehouse. I mean, it wasn't even quite the warehouse. Yeah. It was it was it was mostly in the galleries. The galleries were the places that were open-minded enough mm-hmm. to actually have that kind of creative flexibility. So. Yeah, a lot of sort of music production and performance went into art galleries, which I think it's been like that, for, you know, for years anyway. Mm, mm. Because there are quite, there are locations where there's no money involved. It's to, you know, you're just performing because there's an opportunity to do it there, and you would, you just want to do what you want, mm. you know. So, so that was kind of um, that was kind of in parallel to working at Last Laugh, which mostly um, there was a lot of of um, of music industry pop demos getting done in there. Um, you know, like quite a few projects that went really big were demoed in there. Like one I did was um, was, was the fan club, so their, their second album, so they did Sensation. Yeah, um, and, and they, were, they were massive in, um, in Malaysia. Malaysia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it just went absolutely huge. And a couple of other territories they, they had a bit of success with, yeah. Yeah, so, so I demoed, I think they probably demoed the first album there. But I didn't do that, and then I got brought in to demo the second one. I can't remember even what it was called. It wasn't Sensation, it was... Um, oh my God, I can't um, But Mark Berry, who was an American dance producer, who I think had done Paula Abdul, and... Um, who else did he do? Oh, that's the big one I know of. Anyway, he he, he had a really sort of particular kind of, mm. um, you know, boom, yeah. dance floor sound, really, he's a good producer. So I had been doing the demos, uh, um, I was the engineer to do the demos on that album, and that's where I met Paul Ellis, because he was managing them. Mm. And then, um, once the demos on that were finished, I ended up, because their, their um, regular um, uh, tour mixer was Reese Moody, who was at Harlequin. Um, so he wasn't available, and and Reese recommended me uh, to do the you know to go on tour with him, which I did, um, and that was really f- interesting and fun. And so in the gaps between um, uh, like what for sound checking and so on, I was just playing the the music that I was kind of making and, and interested in, you know, to sound check the PA, and, and it was mostly um, just new, innovative. Um, you know, pure electronica, but definitely going in the direction of the dance mm, floor. Mm. Um, but you know, early techno. Um, yeah, and, and and Paul and I got sort of, sort of talking about that, and um, and so he asked me to do some projection videos for the fan club when they went on tour in Malaysia, uh, which I did, and nearly got in some horrendous trouble because um, the like on the on these tapes, I've mixed in some porn into it. You know, like I was just doing my thing. It was an anything goes sort of industrial. You yeah, know, anything goes. I was just, I was just cutting loose. Anyway, like so in Malaysia, they're really down on mm. porn. It's just mm. like not cool at all. So, and are you talking about like just a couple of frames, like uh, seconds, or was it? I, I think I can't remember exactly. Enough, it was just one nearly, song. Enough to nearly get busted. <laughs> it was just one song, and yeah. it was really amazing graphically. That was. Yeah. It, 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 it just was one bit. That, um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't really over the top clear. It was all electronically yeah. affected. And it yeah, was kind of like yeah. one element of a very sort of complex kind of fluoro pop art kind of mm. a thing. You know what I mean? But anyway, it was in there, and so Paul basically, he 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 must have watched it 
the night before he left to go on tour mm. and suddenly freaked out. But anyway, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he erased it because he, he had no choice. That he, he just had to mm. he, he had to erase this one section out of the tape before he got on the plane to go yeah. go and do this tour. So it's really funny. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's um you know at this point, what's the goal? Is I mean I've heard you talk about the goal being to pay the rent. Was that the goal back then? I mean, yeah, yeah. And what else? I've been on the dole for quite a long time during that period, I suppose. <laughs> you know, it was just on and off. Um, just trying to think. I mean, so from 1990, uh, yeah, from 1990, I had children. I had two children at two years in a row. So from 1992, I was, you know, looking after and, you know, just participating in a relationship yeah. with two children. Yeah. And um, we had a clothing label. It was just really busy. So... Yeah, it's always been kind of hand to mouth, I guess. Sometimes you do well and sometimes you don't, you know. But it seems to be the constant, the same game, mm. well, you know. It doesn't really matter how much money you're making, you're still kind of uh, scaling yourself, uh, mm. you know, to mm. that amount of money. And, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I get by on not very much as far as drawings go. I'm not very focused on taking a large amount of cash out of, um, you know, what I'm doing. I'm more interested in just um, having capability. Mm, mm. So you do the sound engineering and stuff for a while, and then you yeah. So I only I'm only doing that for myself. Like yeah. I, I'm just writing music. I, I stopped mm. working as an engineer for, mm. for hire in about ninety ninety six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just just put put my effort just into doing my own projects. And that's the reason you stopped, like decided um, to just make it about your projects or. It was. You I just stopped just enjoying like, it. I, um, I I I'd taken it far enough, and the, the gigs that I wanted, I just realised that I didn't really want to be going out on the road. Yeah. Um, and my interest in music shifted into, like, from about '95, I was just very very focused on electronic music and had good connections, and the need to travel um, was pretty much uh, focused around doing gigs in New Zealand yeah. and, and I, 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 like I would have been quite liked to have pursued the direction of being a kind of an A-list engineer yeah. but you know for whatever reason it didn't happen I didn't have the temperament or yeah. or the opportunities that I really wanted other people who were better than me had them you know it's just one of those yeah. like I, I didn't chase it really really hard but at the same time it evaded me at the level that I was chasing it mm-hmm. yeah Mm-mm. so you you stop that to do what your own projects what's the significance um i sort of redirected like I, I, the last engineering gigs that i had were at montage recording studio and we were doing polynesian bands mm. so that was a cool experience and and i kind of um started really thinking about um about taking what i had picked up from that scene with the instrumentation or you know um uh, most of the instrumentation and, and grooves and, and vocal styles, that sort of thing, just the way the arrangements were t- put together. So that did actually kind of come into my own music a lot at the end of the 90s and influenced um, what I did with um, Club Lovely. Yeah. That was really Polynesian influenced for a sort of commercial trance, you know, uplifting trance kind of package, which, which was very kind of a Japanese graphic design aesthetic, but it had this... Uh, Pacific sort of floral kind of flavour to it, which I do attribute very much to that time that I, that I spent doing that. Mm, mm. You know, we were doing um, these the, the bands like from Tonga and Nui 
Samoa and, and Tahiti, um, there was a small group of producers who were selling cassettes at the markets and they were selling them in massive quantities. And mostly what they were doing was cover versions with, uh, with different lyrics or translated. Mm -hmm. That was, a, you know, you know it's like island band versions of, um, I had a massive hit with Rarotonga International Airport, which was just, you know, Susan Day's LA International Airport. <laughs> right, yeah. So that yeah, was just like, it's yeah. like 50,000 cassettes or something ridiculous, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, so that was kind of pretty flush. Yeah. And kept me busy for a few years um, at Montage with Mike Donnelly. That was fun. And, and I, I met Nick Abbott there as well. Nick's a really good friend of mine now. Yeah. And he was a recording engineer who kind of started his career there at the time that um, that I was kind of moving on mm. to, you know, getting a bit busy with some other things like um, had a record shop and what else that I was doing. I started buying and selling Polynesian artifacts at that stage. But it's it kind of all at the, at, at the time. The, the, the similar threads of stuff going on, like, you know, be buying and selling art, maybe running a shop of some description, maybe with a studio of some description and just kind of chasing whatever sort of creative projects I might be able to chase. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, making clothes, doing sc and, and screen printing. Uh, because at the time on K Road, um, so from 1987, my partner, this older Byron, so she was the ma she was managing Virus, which is the kind of clothing limb of Fetus Productions. Mm. And I and, and I I previously had a gallery and done e exhibitions with Fetus Productions in, in '87 on Queen Street, and, and that was something that Johnny Payne and I had done. We started this gallery, so th there was this kind of thread of sort of having a, an attachment to the sort of industrial art collective group of people as it evolved, and there was lots of people coming and going from that. So you know, doing that, um, and then. Um, and then having my studio career that was kind of, you know, associated with um, the Last Laugh crew and, and kind of how that evolved, it, you know, because it, it, like it evolved into York Street Studios. They, they basically sort of relocated the tiny operation of Last Laugh Studios up to York Street and, and then it kind of went off on that, you know, adventure. And then I moved up to K Road and with Mike Brookfield, who was... Um, one of the one of the personnel in Fetus Productions, mm. so he was he, he was very focused on um, on screen printing and script making screen printed clothes, but also was somewhat of an experimentalist with video and audio. So the t the technology at the t um, at the time had kind of evolved past where he was sort of interested in staying on top of it, and and he and I became uh, friends and, and leased a building together during the nineties. So during that period. A lot of the time when he wanted stuff for virus, uh, you know, for his shows or whatever, then he would, uh, he would be, ask me to do it. Mm. So I did a lot of that probably from about 1990 to 1994. And then in 1994, I moved a few doors down the road because I, I, I separated with my partner. And, um, and we collaborated. Um, I, I set up a record shop uh, with Heath Burgoyne called Cyberculture. And... I had a gallery there that was doing uh, Pacific art and artifacts, and like alternating um, Pacific art, art and artifact shows, and then doing local fine art shows out of the kind of uh, art school, you know, first year out of art school, mm. you know, n new crowd, who were essentially my contemporaries, who were a little bit younger, but you know that scene on K Road. Um, <clears throat> so I did that until. So during that time, that was when techno really blew up. Mm. The whole dance scene just exploded, and the, you know, downtown house scene, and the trance, and the outdoor, um, you know, big outdoor parties started happening, and, and 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 so right through the 90s, 
the cyber culture was essentially the, the Auckland hub, or, or at least one of them, for the kind of, we were definitely the hub of the Psytrance scene, but that definitely wasn't, you know, the focus of my own personal interest. Um, but you know, like the outdoor party scene, we were selling tickets to all of the gigs that were happening everywhere, and, and, it, and it was out of there that I started touring acts, you know, and, like liaising with Matt O'Brien down in Christchurch with the, um, with the events that he was doing, um, and you know, and, and we ended up having a you know pretty close relationship with the Gathering, and right through, I, I kind of kept that going um, through many sort of ups and downs, right until the end of the Gathering you know doing sort of sponsorship brokering or selling acts to them or performing or you know doing selling drinks and stuff it was it was pretty fraught um, uh, but you know but nonetheless it kind of kept it going for a few years you know, so that was going on running the sort of gallery and music shop and, and I had my studio in the same you know downstairs space on K Road and it's always been pretty kind of rumpty but you know, a lot going on and you mm. know with occasional sort of you, you know uh, crazy stories to tell or you know famous people or whatever you know just all that kind of stuff but for the most part the, the best part of it was not that it was just actually it was a sort of constancy of you know like creative freedom and, and the, also the freedom to be able to put stuff on without having to go anywhere else that you could just do what you wanted in that space without having to you know mm. deal with the, you know taking your gear or, or, or that kind of thing that was pretty cool but you know in the meantime I was actually doing that a lot more as well because of uh, you know um, producing and um, and then taking the acts out to, to wherever you know the the, uh, the opportunities were because there was like a migration from the the, where, the gallery scene sort of got too big and went to the warehouse scene as like in the late eighties and early nineties as the sort of you know stimulant drugs started to become much more available and prevalent um, so that happened. And then gradually the sort of corporate businesses started to get onto it and then the club scene kind of really kind of, uh, it sort of came in afterwards, quite alcohol focused with the late hours and, um, you know, so maybe about 94, 95, 96, 97, those were quite viable years as the sort of tech industries had a lot of money and, and, and they had, so they had funding to support quite sort of uh, edgy cultural mm. stuff, you know. And I kind of surfed that right, right through um, f from, you know, first of all, you know, meeting Paul Ellis with the fan club. And so it, the, the, so Paul ended up at, um, doing A&R at Sony mm. and set up this uh, label with me, Pulse, which was very short-lived. Um, but it kind of, um, that was sort of enough to get me over the line with Sony. And then that relationship, which I thought had just kind of died in the water, it was one of those... I, I put such a lot of effort behind making new recordings. I had a bunch of albums lined up, and then and then it just it all fell over after the Michael Jackson scandal sort of broke. That they dropped a whole bunch of the sort of little acts just to focus on tidying that up. Um, and then and then Paul moved on, and Malcolm Black came, uh, took over. So at that time, I thought that, that was just a disaster, and it, it was you know I was really demoralised. But actually, it was kind of uh, um, amazing because the techno stuff that I was doing at the time was exactly what uh, PlayStation, Sony PlayStation, who were just launching at that time, mm. they were looking for that, you know, and because I had the experience of doing events and I already had that existing relationship and they knew that I could do the production, mm. then I, I just stepped straight into actually being their the kind of um, number one sort of uh, sponsored event producer and doing all the uh, sort of first wave Detroit acts, you know, so that was uh, not, uh, 96 and 97 
maybe just into 98. Yeah, so in that time, I got, I got introduced, uh, you know, to the sort of main players in the, you know, the kind of old school Detroit techno scene. And kept those relationships going ever since, you know. Mm. Well, mostly with Derek, actually. Mm. It, it's fallen off lately, but I've done a few things, not music. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, this this whole... It's a mess, isn't it? It's it's a it's a, it's a web of things, but what what's running through it is that you're always working with people. You're yeah, cool. yeah, sure. Actually, like, you know. So I've I've had opportunity to kind of analyse and and, and, and kind of formalise in a way descriptively, mm. uh, you know, wh- how what it is and how it works, just because I present lectures. Mm. And so the things that are kind of common are collaboration, yeah, collage, yeah, and um, what else? I suppose management, but um, so because I did this lecture at Whitecliffs, and it started off as just being sponsorship and branding for you know independent artists, and then I I, I kind of went deep on it, and I and I re rethought it, and reconfigured it, and renamed it um, collaboration. Uh, uh, Collaboration as a collage of ideologies, mm, mm. you know, because having had all this experience collaborating with people, I really started to realise that what happens when you when you go and create something with someone, what happens is that you you intertwine your your philosophies or, or what you sort of symbolically stand for within a mediated environment. Like there's inherent meaning that is communicated when you align yourself with someone creatively. And, and I've done some, uh, you know, some collaborations over the years where people got really fucking upset, eh? It was sort of like, it, it, as if that, that, that it was a betrayal right. um, that, you know, an artist would, would have chosen to collaborate with me. Yeah. Which was really interesting, you know. I mean, it can go either way. Um, yeah, but it, it, it was just a, quite an eye-opening thing to, to, um, to see how significant it could be for people when you work with someone. You know, well, you use the word collage, and collage is a instantly a type of collaboration itself, isn't it? Between the artist and the medium, and sometimes between the artist and other artists. Well, it, it is. So, sometimes a, they don't know, you know, that it's well, a collaboration. Well, it's visual language, you mm. know, so there can be a number of players in it, or mm. there can just simply be a representation of you know existing mm. material. Mm. So, what happened around this time? I did, so I, with the Black Girls Machine project with Johnny Payne, we were just collaging media madly. We had no consideration at all about whether it was anybody owned Copyrights or anything. It was just like, you know, yeah. we kind of regarded it just like you were chopping up National Geographic. So, and yeah, we yeah. were doing that too, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, making yeah. pictures. Like that was, that was the approach. Um, and it was fun and really interesting and a lot of cool stuff happened. And, and at a certain point, most of the available material had kind of been used mm. and so it, 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 there was like a vocabulary of classic memes I guess that were kind of out there in ambient dance land or whatever and the people who had gone really hard on it knew what they were um, and uh, you know and they, they kind of became you know, uh, sorted and gradually sort of filtered down into mainstream use and kind of to a significant extent were robbed of their meaning along the way. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe it gained a new meaning, uh, or, or be it kind of, um, you know, uh, what's the word, um, degraded, <laughs> you know, defaced. Yeah, and, and so along the way, a lot of the sort of cultural ownership issues started to get talked about. And, and I think that that actually became an interesting discussion in itself, is this idea of, you know, the demarcation between participating in culture 
in order to keep it alive uh, and um, possessing culture as uh, some kind of a um, you know a capital yeah you know as a, as a capital asset and in both those forces you know in play and and the business um, like the business that you would be engaged in while you're doing that you have to you have to be having those conversations along the way because that that is very uh, you know inherent in, in how you make money mm, mm. is the exploitation of the, of the properties you know and so along the way it was, it was a bit unfortunate but the kind of free collaging sort of um, excitement just became too complicated legally to, to be able to kind of be um, sort of commercially viable anymore and so a lot of the fringe stuff um, just had to kind of stay there mm. yeah does that mm. make sense mm-hmm. so when do you shall we jump to um when do you meet Otis? When did I? Yeah, and, uh, when, well, you, and, so and when do you formalise? 94, first time round. Yeah. And so we were, it was when I was... Could it be 94? Um, no, I was at Sony. So I was at a meeting. It was the first kind of Christmas champagne uh, drinkies uh, with Paul Ellis. And when I'd started Pulse, so that would be 95. Mm. Um and yeah, so he was still with MCOJ and Rhythm Slave, and they were signed to Sony as well. Mm. Um, I hadn't had any contact with Otis at the time. Mm. I'd seen him a little bit. He was really young, and you know, at that time, the ten years difference between us was significant. Um, mm, mm. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing happened at that point. We sort of said hello and kind of you know got introduced, and that was kind of the end of it. Um, and then, oh, there was a funny champagne incident that Lewis talked talked with me about. Um, you know, on his podcast, mm. but don't need to go into that again. Um, yeah, and so basically, sort of um, fast forward to, to 2000, I oh know, to 1998. Mm. So I, when I, I took on renting the basement, um, the basement space in St. Kevin's Arcade, and it, so that was the first iteration of the area. And the first show we did was a big graffiti show called Fresh, 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 and I didn't curate it. Um, uh, this guy called Bass, and his name slips my mind at the moment. Um, yeah, so he curated it, and he he was connected with the, the the sort of local big hitters at the time, like Dan Tippett and DLT and and Otis. Anyway, so I kind of um, and uh, inherited the show, or at least he, the the curator base was really um, he he was stuck for somewhere to do it, and he did have some sponsorship to cover the expenses and he'd already put it all together and, and, and needed a lot of help with the media. So I sort of stepped in to help him with the media and did quite a good job, but I kind of inadvertently stood on a few toes, just, uh, you know, I mean, just mm. by sharing images that I didn't realise that, um, that they hadn't negotiated clearances for. Anyway, so, so there was a bit of, um, there was a bit of upset after that just because of the way that I kind of aggressively handled the media, but the show was really successful, and it did kind of, um, you know, get me um, introduced to that whole crew who I'm friends with and have remained friends with ever since. But you know, it, it was a bit of a rough ride. So I met Otis at that show, and Otis is painting. He did a great painting of a geisha girl from a tattoo on his leg. It's really beautifully done, and, and nobody bought it. I couldn't believe it. Um, so. In this gallery, the area, this was the very first show, kind of did my best to buy to, to sell these paintings, and we did sell a few, and then but nobody bought Otis's one, and so I bought it and just put it on my wall, and then because I just sort of thought it's so good mm. and it's so cheap, um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna buy it and I'm just gonna try and I'm gonna sit on it, 
um, so I did and then I managed to kind of wing like because I refused to sell it to anybody this, uh, so, so people come in after a period of time word kind of got out that there was this great painting to go and check out and so I, so I think I managed to um, hook him up with um, maybe four commissions or more no no no, no it must have been I think a seven overall um, of uh, of people wanting to buy this painting and, and I wouldn't sell it um, and so this basically got us sort of started on uh, um, this practice of me running the studio and, and suggesting ideas to him and bringing customers in and then Otis just painting the paintings and being the face yeah so it, it, I, I, I just kind of migrated the idea of being a music producer just into, into mm. an art practice it was, mm. it, and all the promotion it was exactly the same there was nothing different about it all we had the same sponsors the same number of flyers we are putting them in the same magazines same radio ads just everything was exactly the same except instead of it being a DJ mm. In a nightclub, it was a graffiti artist in, in a in a um, you know in a big space, and there was no door charge. Yeah, and there was a lot of drink for free, and the people um, who bought the paintings basically um, they were they, that was how we made the money. Everything else was free, and pretty much all the expenses were covered by sponsors, including our advertising as well. So mm. whatever we managed to make by selling paintings, we got to keep. Yeah, and it was really, the first one was just, <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was like we totally overdid it. Mm. And um, like 700 people came to the show and we, and we made, I think, I think the first show we did, we made 30 grand. And like the biggest dance gig I'd ever done at the time was probably, probably like 750 people at bed on K Road. That would have been the biggest gig. Maybe we did a few that were a thousand, but very very mm. seldom mm. you know you have to do a massive gig because people are paying 20 bucks for a gig right so to make that kind of money out of out of a, a gig you'd have to do a massive gig and 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 you still only probably get to keep half the money yeah, like yeah. my experience was it would cost you 10 bucks to get every single each person you got through the door it might cost you 10 dollars to get them there right yeah it's different now but anyway i've never had a show that you know paid that kind of money ever especially being able to throw a party completely for free mm. having it um yeah i mean it was just like i just thought to myself well that's just you know that's just put me off the other game completely in one fell swoop i just thought i'm not going back to that again it's just like it was a no-brainer mm. yeah i mean that was just like the total pivoting point you know i just thought shit and suddenly i just woke up to the fact like the other business models fucked. Everybody else is making the money, and you're not. Mm. Yeah, and, and also this way around, everybody gets to party for nothing, and the rich people pay. It was just so perfect, you know. So when does when do you take that collaboration with Otis Frizzell and create actually create Western Frizzell? When does that? Okay, so that was really successful. We yeah. did that, and then we were, after we did the, the first collaborative show, yeah. which was Opto Two Thousand. So oh, there was the, there was the, um, the group show with bass that was called Fresh, Fresh, Fresh. So that was the first one. And then I did a series of solos with Askew and Misery. And then Otis was kind of the star out of that lot at the time. He was the one, well, because I'd been looking around trying to find someone who had the potential to work the promotion in the same capacity as Matt, uh, Obi-Wan, Matt O'Brien mm. had done. Mm. Because he's just really good at doing great photos and he's got good, uh, you know, good graphic design sense. You know, he's, he just... He's kind of star quality, and he's funny and self-deprecating. 
you know, so anyway, you need to have a certain kind of a personality and, and you need to have a desire to be exposed. That was what I was looking for, someone who, who could really kind of, be, you know, step up. And for the most part, people were just so suspicious of, of the idea of having someone as a producer operating in that capacity. But Otis had a conversation with Dick, his dad, mm. himself, um, and and Dick said, well, 50% of something's better than 100% of nothing. <laughs> you know, and, and so that kind of got sealed over dinner. Um, it was a really kind of interesting conversation. And he was like, yeah, okay, cool, let's do it. And so I just went straight out and um, and got this crazy sponsorship deal. And then I was bought, he bought his own sponsors as well. Um, and at the time, the money was energy drink money, pretty much, and streetwear, computer games too. Um, that, but that was kind of on the up, the computer games stuff um so yeah we had this ridiculous advertising budget and then and, and then with the opto 2000 show like i really did kind of guide the, the selection of the paintings a lot um because i said I, what i'd observed is that the graffiti art thing at the, at the time there was just no money in it there was an audience of kids but they had two bucks in their pockets there was no mature audience with any kind of spending money at all mm. um and so from doing you know big events with a skew like fresh uh, not fresh 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 um disrupt the system like you know the, the big sort of graffiti jams down in the, in the r2 square we did a few of those um and like having done those i just knew that the hip-hop and graffiti art scene it was still really really developing you know there was it wasn't it wasn't going to be a career move so i said to otis that we need to reposition you, you need to be a pop artist you know that that's that's people are going to get that if you if they're going to be paying big money for your paintings then it needs to be pop art that's kind of a, that's something that people can really understand you know if, mm. if you just kind of make you that and i mean he was there already you know he's a pop artist just making music previously and he had his radio show and um uh, mojo hadn't happened yet at that stage but you know you know he was like okay yeah cool i i, I get what you mean and so the first show he did a really nice kind of um like photorealistic Marilyn Monroe picture and a big William Burroughs photorealistic face and then some of his kind of tattoo stuff and you know it was just a good cross section and very very pop and it was branded and shiny and really slick kind of product values you know and, and so that was my input and the way that he was kind of um, the way that we promoted it, um, it it did kind of spell it out you know mm. it was really bold and, and kind of um, not ostentatious but big scale it's surprising scale for, for an alternative artist to kind of um you know have a billboard that, or, or you know just just to have the sort of um, the magnitude of exposure for an art show nobody had really done that before i was actually kind of really hit the streets with a massive promotion in the same way as a pop star yeah uh, so, so that was kind of significant at the time although it was it was just sort of an experiment or i was kind of acting on a hunch and just doing what i was accustomed to doing but it really did hit the spot um, and so, so that was going really great. And then, at the same time as is want to happen, because of the sort of increased profile with this art show, Otis kind of became, um, you know, sought after, and and some of his own kind of creative ideas well became that much easier to get over the line. And so, for the next three years, he was doing Mo Show and, and travelling around the world, doing um, you know interviewing celebrities and doing that kind of international sort of hip hop and. Uh, subculture magazine show you know um, so during that time I mean that was kind of tricky we, we, we tried to kind of keep it going and we had some merchandise and a few sort of little things going but for the most part Otis was out of the country almost all of that time for the next three years and then 
Um, so, and, and I had been, um, I, I pitched for sponsorship money, uh, you know, following the momentum of the first show that we did. I kind of like, okay, we've got this great idea. Um, we'll, we'll do the next show. So I pitched for sponsorship and then it, it, it just kind of got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed until eventually I'm just like, oh my God, we've just got to do the show. Otherwise I, I'm going to breach. I've just got to give it back. It's like 30 grand. You know? <laughs> I didn't have it. <laughs> You know, but it, it wasn't a sort of a, a, any malicious intent or any kind of mm. business fuck up. It was just that the scheduling just became uh, impossible. Mm. And so I kind of spent that time, I just designed this whole show myself conceptually and came up with the, the, um, the sort of packaging and the marketing plan and everything. And, and that was going to be um, a, a proper collaborative show. So, so, so the first proper collaborative show that, that Otis and I did was Celebrity Warporn, and it wasn't at Western Frizzell, it was Mike Western and Otis Frizzell. And it wasn't local material, it was international sort of kind of cliche. I mean, I mean the, the idea of the show essentially was it was cover versions. It was kind of images that other people had yeah. done already, you know what yeah. I mean? It was yeah. like a rock covers band, except it was pictures instead of songs. And, and the, the, I, what I wanted to do was to be able to take this show of all these pictures uh, framed in, you know, in, in sort of guitar chord boxes and, and actually go and do those shows in pubs because I thought that that was going to be a way that we could get into a whole bunch of places where they didn't even have art galleries. So we could go and have like a, a um, what, do, do like a DJ gig with an art exhibition there, you know what I mean? Yeah. That didn't happen, but we did show the, 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 um, the exhibition in a few different configurations, and, and that was like the start of, of designing shows that could be done repeatedly, where, where you could have a collection of, say, you know, 22 paintings, or um, it depends on how you may want to have them configured on the wall, but a bunch of paintings that could go on a wall in a, in a, in a venue, and then you could sell one or two of them, and, and then sort of go back home the next week and paint a couple more, and go back and do the next gig. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, so it never got to the regularity of doing them weekly, but we did a lot of them, and it really, really worked. Um, and, and over a period of time, it, you know, it, it sort of became a, a, like a regular earner. You know, it was a solid idea. Mm. Um, mostly, the, the pub idea didn't really happen so much that it, the entertainment value of it wasn't really the, the right buzz for pubs. But the um, we did a lot of gallery shows, you know, and kind of pop, it was good for pop-ups, like a good feature show that we, you know, an existing thing that you could just taken to somebody's art party or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do you turn it into the devised character, Western Fazell? Okay, so along the way, I just had mucked around. Um, in, in 2004, um, which was actually before Celebrity War Porn, Otis and I did a collaboration. So, I, so I'd been doing DJ shows um, at KFM um, while well, I, I had a studio that was upstairs in St. Kevin's Arcade and next door KFM radio station started mm. um, and Tummy E.T. So, so they had Iwi funding and I think part of the condition of getting that Iwi funding is that Tommy E.T. had to come in and, and do uh, you know, his content um, in the morning so my studio was next door to KFM and, and so in the morning I, I would be kind of arriving to do my day's work maybe at about 9 o'clock and at 10 o'clock Tummy would be finishing so I would kind of probably catch him for a coffee or, you know, just say a few words or whatever. And then I started doing the 10 o'clock spot. So I was doing changeover that he would finish his show. I think, I think he did six till 10 um, and he played really eclectic music, uh, like, you know, sort of classic kind of crooners, John Rolls or, you know, Kirtikanawa, 
all, all manner of sort of historic Maori recordings, and then he was kind of into Ministry of Sound trance or <laughs> blues or just mm. whatever. You know, he was just all over the show. Mm. And it was really cool and interesting. And on top of that, he was doing his kind of spoken word uh, stuff as well. You know, heavily politicised. Um, and so I was coming in straight after him, got introduced, and then I would do my show. And so what was happening was, so he would go home and go and uh, do the housework or just, you know, just get on with his day and listen to my radio show. And so at the time I was playing like kind of quite esoteric, deep techno and kind of progressive house, but mostly sort of atmospheric stuff and, you know, kind of... Like, yeah, sort of a- ambient tech house. Um, you know, kind of late late night, sort of drugged out, um, but high, really high production values. So, so Tommy was at home with his wife doing the housework or, or whatever they're up to, and kind of messaging me saying, "Oh, I'm, lo- I'm loving the show. It's really cool." So, um, this is about two thousand and two thousand and one, two thousand and two, and I had come out of. Well, actually, I was still doing Club Lovely. We were still touring Club Lovely. Yeah. Um, and so at the time, I really had my eye on what am I going to do when this finishes? Because it had kind of finished for me pretty profoundly that the meth scene had really got dominant and I didn't like the energy of the parties at all. Um, and we'd been doing it for four years, so I was kind of over it. Um, but it was, it was still earning. So at this time, I was thinking, what am I going to do next? I really just feel like just kind of doing something like a total subversion, inversion. And... So the, a, a project came to me where, and, um, and it was like a sort of a um, vocal trance project. And Tommy came in, and he was doing. The, um, he was part of the of the haka in the middle of it. And so I, I had a chance to see him perform. And and at that time, um, while he was there, I got talking to him about. Oh, do you feel like? Do you feel like doing like a spoken word track, or um, like I'm thinking about like a DJ record? dance record or you know sort of electronica but with him um, talking on it and I kind of had this notion that he would present himself in the same way as like Ronnie Briggs did with Sex Pistols as mm. being a sort of controversial kind of character um, yeah and so musically speaking at the time I was thinking that his very kind of eclectic thing kind of sort of had this Malcolm McLaren kind of magic to it of just being this kind of like extremely unexpected potential collage you know, and again, the, the sort of the, the juxtaposition of the personality kind of on top of this dance music aesthetic. So this is sort of what was on my mind. Um, and then seeing him perform on this other um, kind of prog trance track with, with a big Pacific choral arrangement on it. That, um, yeah, so he was really dynamic in that. Anyway, so I thought, okay, let's do, let's do like a, a spoken word kind of electronica record with Tummy, which we started doing. And... Um, so, so it was initially conceived as a music project, but at a certain point I just I thought to myself, how many people are going to come and see this, and how many are we going to sell, and how much could we get for them? And it seemed like the most we were likely to get for them, even if I went to really a lot of trouble with the packaging and stuff, would be like a hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. So we could do, we'd be lucky to sell three hundred dollars. Like CDs were already pretty hard to sell in two thousand and four. Yeah. Um, most people just would burn them. Um, anyway, so. I needed an illustration for it, and so I asked Otis to do th- this uh, cartoon kind of, it was like a sort of four square style face, but it was Tommy's face with his moko and a uh, you know, very short sort of top knot haircut, really kind of graphic logo kind of thing, he did that. 
Um, and so I kind of pursued releasing this product just as a CD. And, it, and at a certain point I thought, no, 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 this isn't, this is not right. We should do an exhibition of, of art and then, um, and then we'll just have the CD as being part of it. So there were four tracks and each, each of the tracks basically informed a particular collection of additional paintings that we arranged in on the wall aesthetically and, and you know there was a bigger picture concept for this exhibition but what, what it basically was was it was a collection of paintings uh, of um, each embodying the idea that the, that the track um, that the music track communicated so but the CD was kind of added to the painting not the other way around the, the, the CD was like the soundtrack mm. to the installation to the artwork and this is the way that the show was presented, uh, you know, at the opening, and the way that it was described any time we talked to anybody in the press or whatever. And of course, so that, so those paintings, they were um, we, we sold those for like about sort of three hundred and fifty dollars. Or there was another edition, like the two tables image, that's been a, a really big one for Western Frizzell. So I designed it, that for that show, and then um, it, and it didn't really get a lot of attention, but it did brand the event quite sort of concisely. Um, so this, all the paintings sold, um, you know, I think there was 110, yeah, so, you know, and for, I think maybe, say kind of average of 300 bucks, yeah, so there was, um, I mean, again, it's kind of the same mess, that there was, you know, like, approximately 100 works that sold for approximately $300, and so out of a relatively kind of modest sort of show, um, it, it, it earned about 30 grand, mm. you know, um, as opposed to a CD project that probably would have been really, really difficult to sell in that kind of numbers anyway. Yeah, and you'd cost be incredibly you lucky to get yeah. more than 30 bucks for it, unless you yeah. went to a lot of trouble with the packaging. So, so that kind of, by this stage, it sort of completely turned the equation around for me now. I, I, just, I had just, my attention was going on to doing smaller numbers of much higher value things. Yeah. with music around if not a part of it but mostly just around rather than actually being you know uh, mm, actually mm. a part of the product informing it or connected to it or, or driving it you know it's yeah, like yeah. if you want to run original music with your advertising you've got to pay someone to do it or you've got a license it or you have to settle for crappy library music like ha having the freedom to be able to just flavor it very strongly exactly how we wanted to yeah at a high level of of you know finish mm. that's been a uh, you know, a constant, you know, and, and, and I don't think it's, um, it's not kind of overstated or anything, it's just m more that it's, it's kind of um, created a, 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 um, a backdrop that is not so much referencing, that is more a, a unique and kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just personal, mm. you know, and, and it um, adds some sort of consistency and extends the aesthetic, particularly with the Western Vizelle stuff, is that, um, the, being able to kind of um, soundtrack the, the visual representation of, of the imagery that we've done, you know, in that project, it, 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 the music has kind of, has placed it in a international context because that's what that flavour is about. It's kind of looking at sort of a quirky New Zealandisms in, in, an, in a global, yeah. you know, in a global context, you know, and, and about that with the relationship that New Zealand have to the rest of the world and how they yeah. feel about it, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, and so it's quite a long-running collaboration now with, with 20 others. years and it's yeah <laughs> yeah so, so it's our 20th birthday at the end of this year yeah and does amazing. that 
Is that is that something you're working towards celebrating in some sort of well, I mean, it was commercial in a, way? In a cert, like it was actually a, a certain part of the birthday was this year. Mm. We passed it, and, we, and neither of us were paying attention. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 uh, to do a sort of if we were to do a retrospective of it, like I, I've been looking at doing a, a retrospective of the area, and, it, and it's so much. Um, that I, I think that that um, sort of looking, that having this new venue space here is actually that that provides enough sort of uh, f- facility to to have that kind of pers- the perpetual retrospective just sort of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, I, 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 it would be nice to do um, it would be nice to do a retrospective, but I kind of I'd rather kind of have it be a bit more substantial, a bit further down the track. I think you know, and, yeah. and also having someone else do it rather than us do it. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's offered, so... <laughs> You're waiting yeah. for... Well, I'm not waiting. You're not waiting for it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be better to wait for that than force it yourself. Maybe. I mean, it's always really weird having somebody else kind of come in because nobody knows what you do better than you. Mm. You know, um, mm. it's... I, don't know, it's I, I, I kind of prefer to, to be doing the next thing rather than, you know, trying to... Um, trying to get the last thing sort of looking presentable again because you're always critical of what you've done before and, and you know your, your taste moves on your sort of philosophical centre shifts somewhere else you know your tools have changed your skills shift your interests you know what I mean Mm-mm. just what you're interested in changes you know so it, it does make looking back kind of a bit um, a nice idea but something that's easy to put off Mm-mm. I mean now you're dealing with um potentially at least a volatile market and certainly politically volatile times it, it always feels like it's been like that to me I, 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 it feels yeah. stable to me at the moment really as far as I mean moving here we've taken an up, taken a big a hike in rent yeah. but also opened up a lot of uh, freedom in terms of um, just having direct access to, to audience mm-hmm. um, and, and much more of a sort of a, a hospitable way rather than just People turning up to you know the studio and knocking on the grubby door, yeah. and, they, and they do kind of like that. But you know we always have to be respectful of the relationships with the dealers that are you know um, like Artisa are our main painting dealer, and so they always get the pick of it. They get first crack at everything, um, and 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 the, you know it's really kind of um, it's good that the freedom that we have that Otis and I have had to be trading sort of independent of an A-list art dealer situation and not have it be a um, something that's kind of a disaster mm. you know um, that's I think and maybe a unique relationship but it's uh, we've just sort of tested and clarified that it's actually better for everybody to have that kind of multiplicity rather than to just have your stuff just in one room and in one context, it, it, it's more meaningful um, and, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, I think more powerful socially to have work um, working in different environments and in different ways. You know, and there's a certain kind of a, a, a you know, a significant, uh, what's the word, um, a signifier. You know, a, 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 like having a, a, an important dealer, there's this, um, Signification is um, that that occurs if you have that relationship where you've got somebody who is a known tastemaker mm. selling your work, putting in the you know putting it in the front window, mm. and, and and effectively saying this is great, we, you know, because that's what they have to say to really effectively sell it, you know, um, 
and it's, so it's really it is really cool to have that with um, with artists they've got a really great location and I really like what they're into they've got mm. really good painters in their gallery and I'm pretty stoked to, to be able to sort of um, you know be compared with that lot it's sort of you know we're not worthy mm. <laughs> feels like that a lot of the time. You know, <laughs> imposter syndrome. Yeah, well, I, I sort of just realised that recently that I think anyone involved in the arts, I guess, or creativity, suffers from imposter syndrome at, 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 at some point. Yeah. You know? And then, and then also just when you think you're over it, or perhaps you think you get over it early on and then you find what you think is your space yeah. to operate it can come back. It's a little bit like its own little version of the black dog for artists, I think. If, yeah, if, if you're too if safe, honest. it'll come back. That's the yeah. thing is you have to be terrified all the time mm-hmm. or you're not doing it right, yeah. I think. Complacency not, is one of the worst things, right? Yeah, I mean, because then then, it are, then you are faking it because mm-hmm. you're just copying your other... You know, if you're, if you're just regurgitating, um, you know, ideas or, or, you know, tactics that you've developed spontaneously kind of as an improvisation... It is. It's fake. You, that's fake. That's yeah, fake. Yeah. You know. So it's really important. Like, I used to really suffer from this kind of, um, really kind of worrying about introducing an idea that nobody else had put out there yet. But but at the same time, being kind of uh, paradoxically attached to actually having fresh ideas all the mm, time. Mm. And so it's a, it's a it's a total stalemate. If you've got those two things going on at the same time, you're terrified of putting an idea out there because you don't know it's any good because nobody else has done it. And secondly, the only way you think you're cool is if you if you're only doing ideas that nobody else has done. It's like well, you're not going to get anything done, are you? So something had to give. And and it's really interesting that Otis and I have got we, we position ourselves in time quite differently that mm. my whole thing really is about what's happening what's happening in the future you're like where, where's this all heading what's how's what's going on now going to reconfigure <laughs> yeah and what ideas are going to grow out of it like where's the kind of new growth where's where's the kind of yeah you know what's going to happen what what can kind of come out of it whereas otis's focus is is, is much more on what's really going off at the moment and um and kind of improvising with that working with that so so he's really good at um, and also he's really good at finishing, whereas I'm really good at at generating a lot of ideas, and and, and so our process is kind of me me just like mm. bombarding him mm. with shit, and and then him kind of um, you know going no, <laughs> but it's a bit like something like the Lennon and McCartney songwriting partnership in a way too, where you've got two sets of eyes and ears and hands running over the ideas so you might be the conceptualist and he might be the craftsman in in one person's read of a situation yeah but you're both having a turn at the idea and you're both um editors of a singular piece of work so yeah i mean we've certainly got our individual skills yeah that's for sure but i mean the the, the line between that is blurred massively yeah once upon a time, Otis was doing all the painting, and now it's really 50-50, yeah. you know, with, on the brushes or just whatever. There's certainly certain tasks that, that, um, that both of us would just go, well, well, I'm not doing that. You've got to get Otis to do that. And same with some other things. He, he would be like, no, I'm not doing that. You have to get Mike to do that. There's, you know, I don't know how to do that. Um, and so as a result, we're kind of capable of, you know, yeah, t- yeah. taking things technically further. Um, but the development is really kind of interesting now because... Mostly, 
we, like we do most of our development digitally with a bit of um, like manual sort of creation yeah, yeah. on ink and pens and scans, that sort of thing. Yeah. But you know, it is kind of in and out of analog, you know, digital to analog, print it out, do another photograph of it, you know. It's this constant process of, of just, you know, um, hands-on, digital reworking, you know, and, and one of us or, or the other pissing in each other's ear is, <laughs> yeah. is the term that, that, you know, that, that yeah, is yeah. used. And so that's just totally 50-50. But what I'm suggesting that runs as a positive for you is that the very concept of dual authorship, which is essentially what it is, oh, yeah. or co-creation, whichever you want to, is is an extra layer of editing. Well, it is. In the, in the process, you know, in the process as it's happening, because if one of you says, actually, this idea is terrible and here's why, uh, a conversation comes up around that, which either justifies and fixes the idea or creates another idea. I mean, it's funny that that word would not get used, but, but the one that does sort of get, like, the deal breaker is, I'm not feeling it. Yeah. That's pretty much it, and it does come down to feelings. That, that, that's kind of, a, look, we don't tend to engage in sort of, like, it doesn't matter if you do a shitty drawing. Yeah. If you're communicating the idea, like, I could do a shitty drawing, and then I give it to Otis, and as long as he gets the idea, it's cool, he can do the drawing. Most of the time... Um, you know, and, and then both of us are kind of equivalently skillful, you know, with Photoshop or cameras or you know yeah. digital processes yeah, or whatever. Yeah. We've, we've got our own kind of thing, um, but it's the, the, the first stage of it really is um, a, a long-term establishment of trust. Mm. So we can have a creative conversation, and we don't need to be talk, kind of talking about ownership. It, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it'd be like. He, he, he might say, well, that's a Western. In, in, in which case, it's like, you can have that one, Mike, because it's that, that's a flavour of sort of creativity that is so distinctly sort of attached mm. to your thing that yeah. there's no point me bothering with that. I, I don't mind giving you some advice, or if you need me to help you with it, no yeah. problem. But that artwork, that identity, that's a Western. And same with some of his stuff. Yeah. You know, the pinstriping or, you know, or the kind of Mexican stuff or you know, any of the, the Maori illustration. I mean, all of that, I don't do any of that. Yeah. It's not my thing. I, I'm not into, you know, I, I mean, I love it. Um, and I've got lots of prints and, 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 we, and, and I've helped him sell them and so on. But that's his thing, you yeah. know. And, yeah. and so in the middle is the collaborative Western Brazil thing is like where those two... Yeah. Where there's an interrelationship. Those two sets of influences and ideas meet. Yeah. And create something distinct to the shared personality. Yeah, it, very much so. That it's even it, it's it's not even. I mean, it is a shared personality, but it's well, kind it's of a like Western persona, Brazil has yeah. actually got its own personality. Yeah, now, yeah. It's and a it shared really persona. Us. Yeah, that you both. Um, it's kind of like. A, well, I sort of think of it actually as as as, a, as another identity that Otis and I both produce for, but it yeah, isn't actually right. either of us. Yeah. That, that the identity is actually kind of like something other, and and that, that's kind of what's cool about it is because. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't feel like me, and, and it doesn't feel like Otis either. It, it's actually like a negotiated sort of entity. Could you describe, um, uh. I guess the genesis and creation and, and creation steps of one of your well-known projects. Like I'm thinking something like the behave thing. Sure. Like I feel like that might be of interest yeah, to people yeah. to understand it. Like it's always interesting talking to people about a medium that's profoundly visual, and all we've got to go on is is our conversation. So can you articulate that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, so I first tabled the idea with the collaboration that we did with Tummy, and it didn't roll. Nobody was feeling it. And I, the idea that I had was sort of the um, the beehive matches 
logo as being kind of somewhat symbolic of arson yeah. or revolution and also obviously it, w- it was representative of parliament buildings so it kind of had this sort of Guy Fawkesy you know blow up the building yeah. revolution kind of symbolism as well as the red black and white was really that as well and then I mean the behave thing Austin Powers was just sort of pretty fresh at that time <laughs> yeah. so the behave thing was just a, a kind of a joke you know rework yeah. it was just it was just one of those um Oh, there's, a, there's a, an art review of Matt. Um, what's his last name? Oh, I can't remember. But he, he termed this. He had this term advertisingism as like an art medium. Mm. And to some extent, Banksy was that, and maybe Jimmy Corti or um, you know the KLF. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Who else is sort of in that realm? I can't, I can't really think. But you know, as a sort of a street art, pop art, graph, you mm. know, reiteration. Advertisingism was sort of the, it was sort of the movement that, that had all the kind of um, you know um, rewordings of McDonald's or different politicisations of the sort of fast food chains, all, all that kind of subversion of brands, you know. So we kind of came in on that, mm. maybe a bit ahead of it, um, but it, that was what was kind of going on. Like at the markets, you could get all those different T-shirts um, with every brand that you can think of, kind of rewritten in yeah, some yeah, kind of humorous yeah. pun or whatever. Yeah. Right. So so that was this, that was like a bit of the backdrop to it. So behave. It, 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 um, when I pitched it to the, um, to Tummy and Otis for the Doctor Tutu thing, it was just I found the original picture and it was this shitty little ballpoint pen drawing, kind of on a whole collection of just like you know doodles that you knock out when you're on the yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah. It was like that with a bunch of other stuff, me manipulating numbers and words and playing with this tutu idea that we use quite a bit with the upside down twos. Um, and there it is. With the the kind of um, Gordon Waltersy uh, interlocking kudus replacing yeah. the behave thing, um, yeah. So so ballpoint pen. And, and honestly, that stayed on the app. Nothing happened for months, four months, five months, and then I kind of came back to it and I started mucking around in Photoshop with a scan of the matchbox and shifting the the, the little bee, um, the beehive doorway to the left and to the right. Um, and stacking them up and, and, and kind of create, working with this idea of, um, of, of the symbols on the Beehive Matchbox uh, being, you know, reworked and rearranged to, to, um, to, to resonate with that Gordon Walters mm. aesthetic, right? So, mm. that, so that was the um, a Photoshop mock-up, really rumpty and incomplete. Anyway, so I showed that to Otis and, and so he cut a stencil of it and we printed it out on a bit of building paper and that got pinned to the wall for like another month, you know what I mean? And yeah. then and then eventually, um, maybe a couple months later, Otis came in and he was like, so we've both been thinking on it independently and, and at this at this point I'm thinking, shit, I really just have, I really just have to but because up until this point it was my artwork. I was thinking to myself, I've really just got to get it together and just finish it and get it right so that I can get it out because it's a really good idea, but I just can't get it right. And then it was like on the day that this happened, Otis came in and he was like, Mike, I've, I've sorted it, I've got it sorted out. Yeah, and, and, he, and he had this really elegant, beautiful solution for this problem that, that I, I was trying to get it to look, you know, mm. what it needed to look like, right? So anyway, um, at, at that point, it was like, okay. We're at the kind of relinquishing point where, you know, it, like this is going, this is being tabled now. Mm. It's a Western Frizzell idea. Up until mm. this point, it was just kind of like I was just humouring you, helping you with your idea. <laughs> but but now it's like th- this is kind of like a game-changing sort of a shift in, in it as far as contribution. So it's like okay, okay, cool. Um, and and so so we designed it as it is now. Um, 
together and Otis cut the stencils which is his kind of you know that's his skill yeah and and we did the mock-up um, in the same way as the paintings that had been done for the celebrity war porn show with this 720 millimeter uh, you know plywood square and the, and the leathery kind of you know quad box case the quad box case that was the first version but it was just um, so it was cut from cardboard stencils and it was perfectly executed we were trying to get it perfect like a brand new sign mm. you know um, and, and, and because of the parabolic shape it was just it was just it was impossible eh, to get it tight <laughs> it was just one of those things where it, it was just like nah it looks shit you can see the you can see the cut you can see the interruptions of the cut so when it so when it was a cut stencil um, it looks shit and then so I'm like okay I'll get a digital one done we'll, we'll do it graphically and we'll get it vectorized and I'll get a digital stencil done and so we, we did that and it looked even worse it was like oh, it was so <laughs> it was so sterile so this painting leaned up against the wall I think for another six months mm. while we tried to figure out how the fuck we were going to get it so that it was going to work and to have it so that it, you know to, just to get it so that it was so tight I, I wanted it to look like a road sign yeah you know really tight and then I suddenly thought, what road sign have you ever seen that's new? You just don't ever see new road signs. Yeah, They've yeah. always got a bullet hole in them. Yeah. They've always got <laughs> scratch. They've got somebody's yeah. name on them or shit. They're yeah. always vandalised. And so I thought, yes, it was like, it, you know, it was the, the great epiphany. So I got this behave sign and I just jumped on it and threw rocks at it. And, you know, I didn't shoot a hole in it, but I just really trashed it, eh? And then um, tipped varnish. I, I, I tipped some sort of... Um, caustic shit on it and and then I tipped and I burnt it and then I tipped varnish over it yeah <laughs> and it all fried up and everything and it had all these scratches and it was just all looked like it had had a life and, and, and that was that that was like the, that was what it needed you know yeah. and so that was um, really pretty sort of significant kind of uh, you know threshold to get over yeah, it's like yeah, realizing yeah. it's like right yeah like the damage was really an impo very important part of of the sort of story for that kind of a work that the, the whole new zealand thing it is kind of pretty road worn yeah yeah you yeah know? so you were creating a found treasure yeah yeah for sure you know yeah. I, I mean up until that point we had done quite a lot of paintings on found signs and stuff yeah, that, yeah. that the production editions of of the opto paintings that were otis's own work that that I, that I had been helping him produce you know so we'd sold quite a lot of those and those were on found signs and things yeah. you know um but it's like you have to find those things. You, it, it's not predictable, you know. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's not reliable. So it kind of got us on this process of um, of, of kind of re reverse engineering with the paintings in the way that they were painted, so that when you came to scratching them up at the end, it didn't look like you just had a sort of Nancy hoon on it with a, <laughs> with a screwdriver and, and yeah, a bit yeah. of sandpaper. Yeah. That it actually kind of looked like something, you know, that it had been there for quite a lot of years and had been hammered by the weather and repaired and stuff, you yeah. know. So you, you, you have to um, like put that put put a lot of that sort of texture and damage down right at the beginning so that you can cut through to it, you know. Mm. So, yeah, and so that was really um, that first painting. We, we we exhibited it at a gallery down in Fanshawe Street, was it Custom Street, called Avea. It was like a restaurant and a gallery together, and kind of snuck it between. You know, I just managed to kind of weasel into this gap like as an afterthought, and it sold straight away and sold another one straight away and and just kind of like immediately it just kind of took off that in no time at all um it kind of went from just being this idea that i thought was i wasn't going to be able to sell 
to suddenly thinking, okay, shit, we, we better, we'll do an edition of 10. Yeah. Um, and so then we did, did the edition of 10, and then all of a sudden the first 10 were sold out, and I thought, God, okay, we'll do the different colours, because the matchboxes, Beehive matches had been available historically in red or yellow or, or um, white. At various times they've had different yeah. matchboxes. Yeah, yeah. So we basically did another... Yeah. Um, yeah, another four editions of the same paintings with the different colourways. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember having a, a, a chat to um, one of the dealers that we were supplying and, you know, negotiating the kind of terms of how we were supplying them. And it was made perfectly clear to me, it's like, well, we would never, ever buy paintings up front. That isn't going to happen. But with this Behave, um, you know, as these Behave paintings started to sell so quickly, um, they were like, Mike, how many have you got? Um, you know, and I kind of planned it that the number of dealers that we were dealing to at the time, I thought, well, if we do 10 paintings and we've got 10 dealers and everybody just gets one, then straight away, as soon as one is sold, there's immediately going to be a shortage, isn't there? That everybody who's already sold one is going to be searching for another one. So this is kind of what happened that, you know, this, um, this strategy of kind of immediately creating a kind of a... Um, you know the, the possibility of a shortfall and, and a demand it really really worked and within the space i think of two weeks of being told mike we, we will never ever buy any paintings off you up front they did they i think they bought three at once and then by the time we'd finished we got the last colorway we did was the the um the yellow ones and so these paintings flew out the door so quickly that the, the next call that i got was we hadn't even basically painted the yellow ones and i sold six of them in one go to the same dealer before yeah. we'd even painted them yeah wow. yeah yeah, so it was really kind of, um, it was a, a, a very, very interesting experiment, uh, yeah, and, and, and an eye-opener, you know, like at the time, the the, the opportunity was there, that, that was just, it was really wide open for this mm. kind of thing, nobody had really done it before, mm. it's different now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what was your total, so what, what, what's the total time spend on that project from that? Oh, so that was 2006. Yeah. Yeah, so we've been doing it for... The, yeah, yeah, but the the genesis of it. I mean, you started saying that sat around for a few months. And oh, then okay. that, what, what do you reckon that took to realise? Eighteen months 18 to months. fully realise it, yeah. and then it's an ongoing project since. Yeah, so the paintings all sold within yeah. about a year. I think that we held some back, but so we sold. Yeah, within the space of a year, I think we sold about forty. Yeah. Yeah. So it started off maybe at about fifteen hundred bucks, and I think the last ones. More recently, I mean, they're selling at auction, I suppose, for about 8500 yeah, now. But, yeah. you know, but they, it really kind of took off. That The yeah. demand for them really went through the roof. And yeah. we sold the last ones for 3500 within the space of six months. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah. And so the lesson there really is don't throw away your draw doodles that you do when you're on the phone. For sure, you know. <laughs> you know, give them a second look. Well, you know, it's... <laughs> Sometimes an idea, you've just got to work it out, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like you can have a really good idea and it just takes a long time to get it right. Yeah. You know, and somebody else's input might be the, 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 the total kind of, yeah. um, you know, that quantum transformation. And, and, and this is really informs the way that the, our collaborative sort of uh, process works. Is that if, well, I mean, there's a high level of trust with Otis um, and me where you can table an idea fully aware of the rules yeah. that, that if you table and collaborate on an idea it, it's collectively owned but at a certain point it's like you know if it's not right for Western Frizzell then it doesn't go with Western Frizzell and whoever you know whoever wants to pursue it well it'll just sort of go back to yeah. where it came from pretty yeah, much yeah, it's okay yeah. you know I mean, and it could change further down the track because like we might try something that we that we did already you know like some works that have jumped across the line I don't think anything's jumped back again 
but you know, a few works have jumped in where they started off as being solos and they became collaboratives, but didn't yeah. necessarily change at all in the process. It, yeah. it just seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, mutually beneficial. You know, that, yeah. Um, it fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just like a song, exactly yeah. the same model. It, yeah. It's just to say, you know, that you, you know, some artists that are, are most famous for singing songs that they didn't write themselves. Mm, mm. You know, and maybe the person who wrote the song never actually sang it themselves. You know. Yeah, or didn't do it as well. At least. Yeah, well, you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, all kinds of things. You yeah. Know, just um, that's exactly the process, and the way it's exploited, it is exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to give the um, anything else a plug? I'm thinking particularly maybe the. Um, relationship with Breezer the well, well, album no, no, and no, talking about changes you know yeah. going back to so all of those sort of projects have been bubbling along but in the last year Otis and I we've bounced between a few studios and kept the music side of things going um, and then it became really clear that uh, uh, you know um, I just really really wanted to get back to having our own gallery space and being able to actually uh, be, be in control of our shows and, and to, to you know to have that kind of working independently again mm. um, and, and to have a space and so I've been looking for a long time for a space in and, and, and West Auckland there's just hardly any but I got lucky and so the space that we're in now that we're still building the new area um, it, so it's a gallery as well as the studio and workspaces and, and so the activity is going to be uh, you know, doing sh monthly shows, mm. and, and so in the process of doing that, I started to look at artists internationally that could be interesting to bring into that environment collaboratively, and also to have product being produced within the, you know the production environment that could be that could be um, exploited internationally. You know, um, and and so that was what kind of guided me as far as chasing David Harrow and. Um, you know, and the introduction to, with Brisa and, and how that uh, relationship has evolved. So it, it's still kind of in the early days, but it's ju just involves you know making things and, and, and trying to make money out of them. Mm, you know, that's mm. that's the idea. Mm. You know, and probably coming up with new ways that a kind of gallery and product orientated in an art direction, um, as opposed to um, you know tr trying to sell music. You know, the music can still get made along the way and the opportunities for the music are still there but the the, um, the main focus like on um, I suppose cash flow and promotion is in an art identity sort of a realm mm. so to go back to this imposter syndrome thing and, and and really what what I said about it how I really have come to see that everyone <coughs> probably feels that at some point I think that's okay if the question around it is why am I doing this or what is my motivation you know what am I trying to achieve yeah, yeah. like it's okay to question whether you're any good at it or if someone's gonna think that what you're doing is valid because ho hopefully you care about what you're doing so do you stop to, to to ponder that question either connected with that or separately from that I mean, do you I, I, do you I don't stop because I don't really have a problem defining it really yeah I, I mean it's like you try to be a good person i guess try to keep your bills you know pay your bills <laughs> yeah. eat um you know tr try not to i just follow my interest and yeah. i try to keep my interests healthy um and you know it's fun to be cool it's good to be innovative and I, 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 like i think that my approach is quite informed by being like a competitive sports person or 
skating culture of yeah, like wanting yeah. to, it's a sort of show off thing or self-expression but you know I did compete a lot like I raced BMX I competed swimming um, I was kind of like really good at times tables you know like I've just always been a bit competitive so I'm quite competitive and, and, and I, I like to sort of um, yeah I just like to kind of um, be the best in the room or maybe the first to sell or the, the one to sell for the most yeah. money or yeah. um, you know um, or just that's kind of the western for sale thing it, it, it's like um, I remember talking to Dave Angels you know techno DJ and, and he said that in London when he was doing this, this sort of warehouse parties and he said it was like Mike it's like a prize fight you know it's like I just want to make sure that they that they just forget the last guy yeah 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 <laughs> that when I get on it's just like that you know, you just wipe the floor with them, kind of. Is there a, has there been a sort of a spiritual advisor type? You know, there are people that you think of, like you mentioned the KLF, which is an obvious art yeah, art yeah. movement music crossover. Oh, I really copied Jimmy Cordy's yeah. print strategy for sure yeah, because right. he was putting up posters and doing the edition prints, and he did them in big volume, and actually ended up retracting a lot of them. He kind of flooded the market and, yeah. and, and had to pull them. Mm. I mean, Otis and I have done a bit of that at one point, not because the market was flooded, but because I really wanted to sort of have... I just didn't like the way it looked out there. Yeah. And, uh, that it, it, the, the, our prints weren't sort of sitting in the right spots. It was just kind of a bit weird. Um, so we retracted from a lot of shops, and, and I'm in the process of going back to, to some of the shops again. But it's like... Yeah, I definitely was very influenced by Jimmy Corden yeah. and what he had done with his was, street postering. That was like, yeah, because because he he did that of putting up putting up street posters that were just art mm. and then selling them, He's selling them on eBay or whatever. And I was thinking even someone like Shepard Ferry, who's totally. you know, same strategy, same sure. strategy, yeah, 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 yeah. And Banksy, of course, yeah. but Banksy a bit different because yes. his his Banksy's buzz is is much more street cartoon and pranking. Yeah, and we've done a bit of that, but not to the same extent. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, you know, Banksy's Banksy's is, you know, he's done a good job. Yeah, yeah, he's sort of... Um, All of them together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how many people are working there, but there's got to be a few. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The veil's sort of been lifted just enough now, too, with the documentaries and stuff, that I think that's not obviously not cheapened the brand, but it's maybe cheapened some of the critical assessment of the brand. It's really gentrified now, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and that happens to... to that's, a, that's it. You have, this, you have this alleged anti-establishment voice that is so completely establishment. Uh, I mean, Western Frizzell, you, uh, you know, it's it's middle of the road kind yeah, of positioning. Yeah. But I think that we've done something quite cool with it. And it, is it, it's it, yes, it is middle of the road, but it's still edgy. Mm. You know, like we've sort of Trojan horsed some quite subversive ideas into very middle mm. of the road kind of scenarios. You know, I, I mean, and I, and I think. Well, you've had a lot of you've had a lot of blowback on. Um, I guess the appropriation I mean, discussion. Little, really. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought you must have had quite a bit. Nah, I mean every now and then it yeah. comes up. But look, we have a really great relationship, but um, with you know, like I have two Māori kids, so I have a responsibility within you know, I have a responsibility in terms of my relationship with Māori culture to sort of have some integrity in it and also to have some level of awareness. Yeah. Same with Otis, he's got Māori family members as well. Otis is really accomplished as an illustrator and with his experience tattooing, that he's been doing that for a long time. So he kind of has some considerable mana as a practitioner, yeah. you know, and so yeah. I think 
and, and I've had a lot of experience and I know a lot about um, Pacific art and artifacts because I've been trading in that game for years. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't speak Māori. Um, my son does and he's Pākehā. My wife works in that game. You know, she's, she works in social sciences. And so in terms of kind of having any sort of contentious relationship, say, with the, with the social sciences disciplines, which is where, if any, rub is going to occur, it would mm. be in that discipline. Mm. Here, a few people have had some things to say and probably, I mean, Dick Frizzell certainly has gone down that road kind of ahead of us. Like our um, the way that I've kind of approached working in that medium, you know, or in, in that domain of the sort of bicultural, um, yeah. you know, negotiated bicultural space, you know, and, and that's what it is. Is it's it's under negotiation still, and, and, and you know, so that, so that's kind of what we're doing is we're sort of negotiating. I, I, at no point are we ever uh, trying to take or um, or. Uh, undermine or you know um, in any way sort of subvert in a um, um, in an aggressive or um, what's the word I'm looking for yeah it strikes me as it's more of a humor sometimes humorous but also a philosophical recontextualization I mean, yeah it is for sure I mean like say with with the, the word series like with Aroha so that's kind of a pastiche of you know, samples out of yeah. McCann and Gordon Walters and, and, um, and, and you know, Hotary, not direct samples, but, you know, mm, appropriated mm, sort mm. of um, uh, memes, elements, to, to create that word, which, you know, uh, like, the, the idea to do that really um, arose from just seeing all the decorative art shops that have got the plates with Araha yeah, and yeah, sort yeah. of, you know, crafty sort of stuff. And I thought to myself, well, obviously people really, really like that idea, that it is really kind of... You know the 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 message um, you know that that is communicated in that is something that a lot of people want yeah, yeah. to the extent that they, they they are happy to buy these horrible things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know trinkets. Well, yeah, and there just wasn't anything really kind of kick ass. Yeah, that, that, yeah. that sort of had the kind of um, a more sophisticated conversation going on yes. where it would actually communicate something beyond just that trinket. Where it's sort of like, okay, wow, that's actually kind of like. Yeah, mm. you know, I'm kind of really feeling that, you know, with the aesthetic of it and the composition, and also as a type bit of typography, and it's got the sort of graffiti blockbuster aesthetic as well. There's a whole bunch of things coming together mm. that spoke to a maturing audience. Yeah, the, with the sort of the old end of the graffiti crowd, they were doing their houses and having kids, and you know, maybe they got quite a lot of money and can afford to buy some of those paintings, or maybe they want to, but they can't. Yeah, and, you know, so they can kind of participate and comment. Like we've sold a lot of work. To people, to the um, say the sort of baby boomers who are in the, the you know who are the, like the McCann first generation market, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they buy them for their kids yeah. as presents because yeah. it, it, the, the um, those works they they span between those generations, they're inter- intergenerational in the conversation of them, you know. And, and so that's I think a significant part of what the Western Frisell artwork does is it kind of grabs. It connects to the sort of deep art history, mostly with the sort of uh, modernists, mm. and so yeah, so it connects with that that kind of innovative modernist um, traditions, and like puts it through a kind of um, a pop street multicultural kind of a processor. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it, it gives it like a, a, a pop remix. Mm. You know, and, and the way that they come together, it is very much like, you know, the, the kind of art DJ remixes. 
you know the way the way that the, the, the ideas are sequenced and, and kind of you know uh, you know knocked into shape together and just and the selection as well with the inherent meaning of it, of each of the elements that go into those works mm. it, it does really significantly in, inform you know the bigger the bigger picture message you know so, so they're, they're just like mixes you know mm-hmm. so a busy year then trying to get the new area yeah, yeah. Fully, fully operational. I mean, well, operational, it, it, but fully uh, operational in terms of finished. It, it, no, it only it never oh, is. It just yeah. never is. I was gonna say everything is ever evolving with you guys anyway, right? Like, well, I, I'm, 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 it's really cool to be dug in, and it's really cool to have some stability for mm. sure. Um, and it's it's good to have a space that other people can come into. Mm. Um, and it, it's fun to. Be working with a bunch of different people so you know for that surprise factor and just to see some new faces because we did get really sort of um i wouldn't say cut off but we've kind of been quite reclusive for the last maybe 10 years just because it's got really busy and you know um we're just the, the time's got divided where you know otis and i will maybe do two days a week and he's doing taco business and then i've got yeah. my side projects and and then it's you know it's time for both of us just to sort of get serious and catch up and make mm. some money just however it's going to happen and all the while moving forward you know mm. or, or, or keeping even just keeping an eye on what what is the bigger picture plan you know like my bigger picture plan at the moment is is, an, is an, a network it's not really kind of an end result at all mm. it's more of a sort of um a community of relationships and, yeah. and a kind of a supportive a faci- facilitator role almost isn't it yeah i mean Maybe. Or, well, it's it's uh, it goes back to I guess um, a producer role, ultimately. Yeah, I, I, some of it's curating. Mm. I mean, I, I think that it's the sort of alchemical nature of it is, is that you just sort of bring reactive elements together, and if you do it right, it's it, it's it's self sufficient. Mm. You know, like there was a philosophy that I, um, that came out of Fetus Productions. I think Mike Brookfield might have written a manifesto years ago. But it was it, it turned up in Jed's lyrics actually, and that was create your own position, and that was so that was a fundamental philosophy. It was almost like the only rule of entry in the Fetus Productions collective was if you could do that, then you then you're in. Hmm. And so there was all kinds of problems that might that may be associated with actually kind of being successful hmm. with that endeavour, right? Yeah. You know, because you might not get on with anybody, or they might hate what you do, or whatever. But you know, if you could create your own position, then you, there was a place for you. And, and, I, and I've kind of stuck with that pretty much. That's like that's how it's worked for Otis and me and pre- and all the other people I've worked with too. Is that I've always kind of um, like when I started engineering, I just turned up and interned. You know, I cleaned the toilets, made cups of tea, I sat in on sessions, I helped, answered the phone, opened the place up when nobody was there. You know, I just kind of made it so that it worked for me. And then. Um, that, 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 that's just sort of carried on ever since of just keeping on doing that and and, and, and it's become uh, enough just to, to keeping on doing that and st- has been enough to be self-sufficient and other people who can do that they're the ones I work with is if they're just prepared to kind of turn up and create their own position in the scheme of things then we'll get stuff done and there isn't a deal as such there's just a conversation if there's any problems you just talk about it you know it it's kind of because there's always, um, uh, you know, goals set in time, like events that you just have to kind of have a certain mm. amount of work for, this promotion, tasks that need to be done on time. But there isn't a conclusion so much, you know. It's, it's like if there is conclusion, it's kind of an indication that the relationship has failed. 
you know, mm, mm. that I'm, I kind of am more interested in, um, in, in putting the effort into having the relationships be successful and that having those, the, 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 the sort of measure of the success of the relationships is the productivity, you know, and, um, and it, you're always going to have problems and there's, there, there's always going to be, um, you know, surprises, good and bad, you know, people die, you know, weird accidents happen, you know, sometimes you, you get lucky and, and something unexpected that you really had no faith in or, or, or were that bothered about, you know, might kind of really do something magical for you or whatever, you know. But along the way the success is just being able to keep doing it and, and um, yeah, I mean, that's what I do it for. Yeah, the, where I'm kind of positioned um, as far as the sort of business and aesthetics and so on, it's on the fringes so it's not very lucrative. You know, yeah. it's always yeah. hard yards. Yeah. Sometimes it might look like we're, you know, like that we're really packing it, you know, packing it in the wallet. But no, no. <laughs> for every successful idea, or there's the eighteen months or more that it takes for it to happen, and yeah. there's and there's the failed ideas too, or the you know very modestly successful ones, and then there's all the hidden costs around all of that and, yeah you know it could be really expensive exploring yeah. ideas and sometimes yeah. you have to gear your whole operation to such a scale to actually do the big idea that you end up kind of it's just a nightmare you know I mean that's really um, how I work has been really shaped by by witnessing those nightmares and having a couple of monster nightmares myself of just trying to do big stuff and then making a mistake on a big scale mm-hmm. whereas now try to kind of have a relatively sort of even-tempered research and development stage <laughs> of just sort of, you know, mucking around, testing the water with small ideas, doing developments and, and, and upskilling at, 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 at kind of affordable levels of, of disaster, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, yeah. then, and that's kind of, the fun part is actually kind of having disasters or, you know, yeah. some wins, some loses, you know, because one week's disaster might be your next week's meal ticket, it, it, it can be like that, you know, some, yeah. just, that's just kind of how it goes, you just never know. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of, sorry, a lot of the time, that the idea that you put out there, it might be a disaster when you put out there, but it, but it seeds another idea that comes yeah. back and that's the gold one, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But that happens really often. And we were, if we were saying that that complacency is a, is a problem and a, a concern and feeling too comfortable it's it's quite nice to be operating a little bit on that on the side of tension the tension of making the rent the tension of getting by you know the everyday tension yeah I, I, I never feel bad about kind of um, being a bit desperate in the public eye I, I think it kind of I, 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 don't, I don't think it's a bad thing and I never try to look really flash or you know no. um, like you're totally kind of across it all well you have to be realistic right and you, you want to paint a realistic picture of where you're at because I think there's been far too much I guess there's a um, it can it can be seen as going either way but I feel like there's been a little bit too much romanticizing about the artistic lifestyle that people don't have a realistic picture of it by the same token that you don't want to hear constant sob stories because pack up and do something else I mean, it's somewhere in the middle. It's in the just middle work, of that, isn't it? You know, yeah, that's what I mean. It's like no one's no one's owed the right to be a musician or a you know saying that you did it for thirty years doesn't mean you still are allowed to do it if the market shifted. You know, I agree. you have to move with that or do something else. Yeah, Because yeah, like, yeah. you know you're not like ordained as a guitar player. Like it's not you know your right that you've earned and the village needs one. <laughs> you know, it's like it's true. I mean, 
it's tough. Yeah. You know, it's competitive. If you're not if you're not winning, then yeah. you, you know, get off the track. Yeah. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Sorry. You know, I, I guess it's different if you're like you've devoted your life to mastering an instrument. That's a different kind of a thing with yes. a traditional instrument, that, you know, or, yeah, yeah, or, or, yeah. or the sort of very long traditions. Yes. That, that kind of, um, like, I think that respecting and nurturing those kind of artists, I, I, you know, I, I do uh, understand the value in that. And, um, but otherwise, it's it's just the pop market in particular. It's just competitive. You're just yeah. out to, you know, you're out to yeah. part people from their money. Yeah. yeah. The, the social agendas as well. Like, like my drive. It is very politicised. Yeah. And so we're kind of teetering on that line of, you know, if, if you want to, if you want to really push an idea out there at, at scale, you know, like to be really influential, then. The business model has to be an integral part of the way the idea is delivered. If you don't, if you don't take care of that, then you won't get your idea very far. But if you can actually integrate the business model with the way an idea reiterates, like say for instance the the unity um, fist, which is you know that, yeah. the red sort of pop fist that we did, yeah. which um, like that was done just purely as an art idea, but it was also done at a time when we wanted to sort of. Um, Create a, a public um, statement of uh, like an imperative sort of move left imperative, you know. It's a really clear sort of revolutionary symbol, but abstracted so that there was no there was no partisan kind of branding on or anything. It was just a kind of a, you know a, a revolutionary statement, mm, mm. Um, you know, a, a, as a sort of a a, a, um, a you know sort of call to action with, without any kind of prescriptive um, you know. Uh, uh, a description of what that action might, yeah. might, might actually be. Yeah. Okay, so we did that. And, and this kind of came about from, from uh, Otis and me having a conversation about, you know, what are we going to do? We've, we've done supermarket bags and we've got quite behind that whole band supermarket bags thing, and, which is, you know, now gone the full distance. That's really cool. You know, and we did, um, what else have we done? I was water, some water bottles, um, and, you know, the usual sort of variety of merchandise. Anyway, so I was like, I really want to. I want to brand a political party. <laughs> I was kind of joking, um, you know. But anyway, so that's that was the the sort of first seed of it. And then the next idea was: Can we do like? Is it possible to do a fist, or can you do a hand? Can you make the Gordon Walters sort of positive negative mm. Kuru thing? Is it possible to have that work as a hand? And so it, um, it was very very challenging. It took a lot of goes to work out how to do it because the thumb. Is the problem that the, mm -hmm. the black and white, black and white, black and white, black and white, and then it's like, oh well, the thumb's got to be white, but it's going onto the white. It just doesn't work. Um, so, so we didn't finally manage to get that to work. And then having nailed the hand, it's like, okay, great, we can do a hand. Then it was like, all right, well now we can do like West Side or the Fist <laughs> or you know Shaka and stuff. I mean, it didn't feel sort of particularly radical to me. It just seemed like we just had done this kind of aesthetically significant triumph of, of actually working out how to do this hand. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, but the first one, the fist, um, uh, so we put the, um, it was just in advance of the election. And, and so just after having the conversation about, oh, you know, my fantasy of I want to brand a political party, um, I, I kind of, I thought that Jacinda Ardern look like I, I, I had said to a few people like they, they should put her in the hot seat you know she's she's the one that will t you know that will lead them to a victory the little just you know didn't have kind of mm. you know, he didn't have pop factor mm. anyway so 
first that conversation and then he was gone and then Jacinda was in there and then the phone call we got the phone call from Clark her husband to, who's a friend of Otis's mm. saying look we're really up against it we're up against corporate money we've got seven weeks or something it's like can you help us out with some merch or something and I just, I just looked at each other it's like weird this is weird <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway so we did we got the fist and we did this bumping fist thing for their um, just do it campaign yeah. and they did really yeah, and donated it to them for their merchandise sales yeah and I think that, so that, that it was like shopping bags and t-shirts and I hooked them up with the, with the company that does our merch yeah so it was really successful they sold like well, they generated I, I remember because we were just struggling, had no money at all, couldn't pay the rent. <laughs> you know, it, it was just both of us just like, oh my god! We, we, like monthly, we have our five thousand dollar meeting, mm. and we're it's like, okay, we, we've got to figure out how we're going to make five thousand bucks because that's what we need, kind of, to sort everything out at the end of the month. Mm. You know, new screen print or the rent or just you know whatever else the cars cracked out. So we're having our five thousand our five thousand meeting, and um, and and then I got an email. Um, from the Labour Party that, that we had just donated, that we donated 6,000, thank you for your $6,500 do donation to the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for this merchandise that we donated to them, I was like, uh, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> difficult. Well, I mean, it was awesome to do it, but it was just, yeah, yeah. You know, it was just so funny that totally. it was kind of like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, there, um, is, uh, is there anything else we should talk about? I feel like we've had a pretty broad survey and we've gone for a while but I don't want to leave anything out if there's anything you wanted to put across no I mean it's going to be more of the same this year like every time new artists come in it's always kind of about adding flavour and interest and yeah. you know um, it, I, I, no, no I think we've sort of covered it mm. yeah kind of it, it's, I think this year's just going to be an upscale really and, and much more kind of yes not selfishly focused but a much stronger identity in terms of uh, the, the kind of a, a, um, a broader kind of community interaction with other artists and with their communities and kind of having a space that other artists are involved with mm. you know like over the next three months that the um, Fane Floors is doing uh, bringing No Engine his band here and doing an art exhibition for a week and then in May um, Mark Tan is bringing his exhibition show out from LA so, so that's kind of like his pop music mm. new projects with his photography um, and then I guess probably June, um, then maybe we might have a, a Western Frizzell exhibition around there and, and then after that, the um, new collaborations with Brisa Roche and with David Harrow, LA, you know, electronic dub producer who's now doing uh, cinema 4D graphics, at, you know, to go with his dub projects. And so David's been doing a... Um, an electronic version of Terry Riley's minimalist masterpiece. Oh yeah. Um, in C. Mm. Excuse me. I'll do that. Um, yeah. Um, and so yeah, that'll take us up towards the end of the year, and then, and then going into Christmas again, we, we sort of just get back to, you know, business as usual, really. Um, yeah, and start again the next year. I think that's about it. I, um, Certainly enough for the moment. I'm just <laughs> flat out. Mm. It seems like publishing is kind of increasingly, you know, doing books seems like a kind of middle ground way of delivering like a multimedia product at, at a level that people are interested in owning and will pay something for. 
um, you know, but but it's kind of not a um, not like a sort of four five hundred dollar artwork. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it's that area around kind of like a hundred dollars is yeah. quite a good place if you can do something interesting and value for money. Then there's a lot of business there. You know, I'm always interested in, in, in that kind of um, you know, and what can be done around the area. And you've got to be careful because you know it's it's always the number of transactions that you're doing, how much time it takes to actually kind of process this. You know, what whatever it is that you're that you're you know selling. And, and how that kind of um, how that impacts on what else you're doing. Otherwise, you just end up your life just gets, gets taken over with, mm. with putting stuff in envelopes, and and, and you just kind of like you're just a slave to your own you know yeah. rubbish generation game. Yeah, yeah. You want to do more of what you guys are trying to do, I guess, which is um, have the work go out and do the work for you. Yeah, for sure. Working while you sleep is really great. Yeah. It's awesome. But also, like with the projects, the idea is to break even on them straight away. That's kind yes. of always the goal. Is if you yeah. can do it quite quickly and just get and, and get the production expense taken care of immediately, like on your first offering, mm -hmm. and then it goes on the shelf maybe, and it just ticks over. So that at any time you've got the new one, and you know it's sort of monthly or every couple of months a new that project. generates interest in the back catalogue. Yeah, it keeps yeah. people looking at you, and yeah. then you know pretty frequently not that successful initially, and then every now and then you get a surprise and something will just blow up, you know. Yeah. And then, but that that just kind of creates, keeps people kind of interested. It keeps the conversation alive. It, it keeps the agendas that you that we might be focused on kind of pushing, like you know the rubbish bags thing or whatever direction politically or yeah. you know just whatever. Just commercial stuff, um, you know, music projects, events, all that kind of thing. Wine, you know, we've got the wine. So all, all of that is just kind of um, the, the new projects. Just kind of keep people looking at all of that, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. And then along the way, basically, the, the shelf is filling up with prints and and artworks that, that that's like a cumulative asset. And I mean, ultimately, that isn't going to hit its full value until we did. Yeah. Whoever inherits that is the one that's going to get rich out of what we're doing, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and so that's kind of the game, you know, with some sort of peeling off charitable kind of donations along the way, and 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 kind of just trying to have fun, really. You know, just to do as much as possible, and to kind of have it be as productive as possible. You know, and other than that, um, I mean, that's it. That's it.